we all love a good story. Uh, most of us can remember sitting perhaps by a grandfather or, or an uncle or someone who would tell us a great story. I remember that we had, when I was younger, a scout master, and we would go on scouting trips, and he would sit by the campfire, and he would spin a story, and we would get into the details. You, you just can get absorbed into a good story. And sometimes the story would have a surprise. Sometimes it would have some sort of moral lesson. But whatever, we loved listening to stories. We prize a good storyteller. Virtually every culture does. And among storytellers, Jesus is ranked at the top. Jesus was a master storyteller. And in this passage, this parable, we see his craft at work. He creates a story and he shares it. And it would have been interesting to have been there because we sort of understand it because we have the rest of the story in the form of the verses that come after the telling. But imagine that you were just one of the people on the seashore and Jesus opens his mouth and he says, listen, behold, or, or to put it in the more modern parlance, listen, look, a farmer sowed some seed. Some fell along the path, da, 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 da. and at the end, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You'd be tempted to go, so what? And that, brothers and sisters, is the essence of a parable. I remember going through Bible college, going through seminary, and we were told, you know what? Jesus taught in stories. Everyone loves stories. You should tell stories when you preach. You should do like Jesus and preach parables or preach in parables. Those of you who are chuckling, well, the parables represent sort of a, a, a double-edged sword. And so we see that on the one hand, parables are remarkable teaching tools. Because for those on the inside, for those who are approaching Jesus from a vantage point of faith and of spiritual quickenedness, they serve as a mighty window into spiritual realities. And it enables us to grasp spiritual truths in a very picturesque manner. But conversely, to those who are on the outside, and understand in a minute when we get to it, those on the outside, it doesn't mean people who are not yet in the kingdom, because those are the very ones we're trying to reach. Those on the outside are the ones who have already decided that they're not going to believe in Jesus. But to those on the outside, the parable is vague enough, a story is open-ended enough, that it allows them to hear whatever they're wanting to hear. And so thereby, they hear the words that would be life to them, but because of the hardness of their heart, they come away having heard something that leads to something other than life. Parables are a double-edged sword. And it's my hope that for you today, this parable is life and encouragement. Now the use of parables themselves begin here in this book. Jesus is oftentimes thought to have taught exclusively or primarily in parables. 
I mean, how many times have you just assumed Jesus taught in parables? That's what he did. But if you actually look at it, the first occurrence of the word parable takes place in chapter 4. Likewise, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first occurrence of the word parable occurs in chapter 13. In both cases, the use of parables comes right on the heels of an uh, of an not altercation but of a but of an incident where Jesus confronts the religious leaders calling them out for their hard-heartedness based upon their formal rejection of him so it's on the heels of the rejection of the religious leaders that Jesus then starts teaching in parables now what is a parable is it this is a quintessential example of a parable in chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. And if you look up the word parable in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it says that a parable is a short story, usually an allegory, that teaches a moral or spiritual lesson. And unfortunately, a great bit of harm has been done by following that definition. You see... Contrary to just being a short story with a point, like one of Aesop's fables, the, the parable, the parables, can be a whole range of things. In Greek, the word parabole, see how that's so close to the English? A parabole is, can be a riddle. It can be a similitude, a, a comparison where there's like or as. It can be a, an allegory like this. It can be a proverb, like a wise saying. It can be even a, something that serves as a sign or a, or a type or an antitype of something. In other words, a parable is anything that is illustrative in nature or figurative in its use of language. So anytime a pastor or a preacher is preaching a message, and they say, you know, it's like when I was a boy. As soon as they say that, it's like when I was, and they start using an illustrative, that falls into the category of parable. So parables are not just stories. And you've got to keep that in mind when you look at other parables that Jesus tells, because they're not all stories. This one, however, is. At this point in the chapter or in the book again the religious establishment has come out against him and so he tells the story and then in private he goes and he explains to them the significance of why he's teaching in parables and we've already explained that for those who are on the inside the use of an illustrative type story or example or comparison or riddle or whatever can be a helpful aid to learning but to those on the outside, the open-endedness of a parable allows them to hear what they want to hear. And so Jesus actually quotes in his response to the disciples here in verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah 6. Now many of us have been to missions conferences and we've seen the banners where we love quoting and reading Isaiah 6, 8. Isaiah 6, 8 is where it's fresh on the heels of Isaiah having had his lips cleansed from the angels with the coal, the burning coal, and the voice of the Lord says, Who shall I send? And Isaiah responds, 
Send, here I am, send me. We love 6-8. Oh, it's a great call to missions. You know, send me, here I am, send me. But the funny thing about 6-8 is it rolls right into 6-9. And so, here's the passage in its entirety. 6-8 goes, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. 6-9. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, the eye there is Isaiah, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Isaiah's commission was to go and preach and teach in such a manner that the people who had now crossed a threshold and were hardened in their unbelief, that they would hear a message, yet the message was in such a way that they would not perceive that it was life to them, and thereby they were being confirmed in judgment. So the message that Isaiah was bringing was not just a message of judgment, but the manner of the message was itself a form of judgment that thereby confirmed their hardness as a foretaste of the judgment that was to come. Jesus' ministry at this point takes a dramatic turn. He's still preaching to the crowds. He's still appealing to the lost. But as you read as the chapters advance, his tone towards the religious establishment in particular and, and Israel in general becomes one of pronouncement of judgment, of warning that there is a judgment to come. And so his use of the parables in this instance, fresh on the heels of their hardened rejection of him, is itself, we are told by this quote, a form or expression of judgment. That now they're going to hear a message that by their rejection of it, they're confirming their unbelief thereby setting them up for the even bigger judgment that is to come. So when you hear a parable, remember, there are two options before you. The option of unbelief. And if you reject it, you're demonstrating the hardness of heart. And the only thing left then is judgment. But if you hear it, and if you perceive it, the message is life to you. So, this parable itself then becomes sort of a parable about the parables. Which is why in verse 13, he says, if you can't understand this parable, you have no hope of understanding any of the other parables. It's a parable that in a very real sense reveals to us the way the kingdom is working, the way the gospel works in the world, and Quite frankly, at a very fundamental level, it's a parable that explains why it is that so many people react so differently to Jesus. It's what it's doing at a very fundamental level. If you think about it, it's a very simple parable. A farmer goes out and he sows. Some of the seed falls on bad soil and it doesn't produce a harvest. 
Some seed falls on a good soil and it does produce a harvest. End of the story. Okay, so what? What do I do with that? Is it, is it just describing a reality? Or is it prescribing any sort of action for me to do? Well, we have this thing in this passage called verse 9. And in verse 9, Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard many times in my life those words, He who has ears, let him hear. Usually it's on the lips of my professor in seminary or college where he's just gone over some material. And this is our clue that we'd better pay attention because we're going to see this again on the test. Or I heard it in my professional career in the military where they'd be talking about some visitors from Washington coming to the base. He who has ears, let him hear meaning that there's an implied task that I better get ready for an inspection. Usually when we hear someone actually tell us, he who has ears, let him hear, it's a clue that what has just been said has practical significance for us, and it is in our best interest to pay attention, figure it out, and implement. Couple that with the fact that at the beginning, Jesus says, Listen, and then look. Listen, behold, and then at the end, he who has ears, let him hear. This tells me that he's not simply describing something that we're supposed to go, huh, okay, this is a scientific explanation of a phenomenon. Huh. No. There is something significant about this passage. And he's calling us to pay heed and to act. You see, there are four types of soil. In this passage, which is a true allegory, every component of the story represents something in real life. The sower is the Son of God, and by extension, all those who minister in His name. The seed is the message of the kingdom, the gospel, the good news. Even the birds represent satan satanic forces, the, the, the weeds that come up. Those represent the struggles of life. The sun that beats down represents tribulation and trouble. Everything represents something. And in every case, recognize that the sower and the seed are the same. What makes a difference as to one's standing and one's reception of Jesus is the soil. The thing that this word lands upon. That's the difference. And so, of course, some of it is the hardened path. I'm sure many of you have walked in the woods or along the road and have, there's, there's just a sun-baked, hardened path. And it's impervious to anything going into it. The seed hits it and it just sort of bounces off. And there are people who are like that. Their, their life has been one where the, the hardening effects of sin are such that the message of the gospel hits them and it just bounces off. It's impervious and it just sits there. And, and the devil comes along and takes it away, and it has no effect whatsoever. The terrors of hell and judgment mean nothing. The joys of heaven and forgiveness and removal of shame mean nothing either. They're just spiritually dull. And then, of course, we see that some are like that rocky soil. 
by rocky soil, what they most likely meant was uh, a layer of, of limestone that had a, like an inch or so of, of topsoil over it. So you would plant seed on it inadvertently, and it would grow rapidly, but it wouldn't last. And of course, we encounter people like that routinely, who they, they go to a, a, a Christian camp or a revival conference or something, and they get excited for Jesus, but just as quickly as it comes, it goes away. And then, of course, there are the people who exist who, who are like the thorny soil, where the word goes in, and it seems to take root, and it's flourishing, it seems, but then the cares of life, you know, I got to have a job, you know, oh, I got to pay bills, I got to take care of my house, my body's getting older, my kids are getting older, I got to pay for their college now, oh, I got to start thinking about retirement, and all the things of life just pile on and pile on and choke out the word. That happens. Then, of course, you have the good soil. And the good soil is the soil in which it flourishes and grows. Now recognize that even good soil experiences the troubles of the beating sun and the pouring rain. Even good soil, thorns grow up in. But because it is the good soil, it's able to resist all that and grow. But I think that there's something there very practical for us because quite frankly, if we take this at its face value, we can't change the soil that we are. The soil is what it is, isn't it? The hard path is the hard path. We can't change what we are. Does that mean that I should just then pat myself on the back that I appear to be good soil? Oh, I'm great. I'm glad I'm not that hard, baked, clay path. I'm not that rocky soil. I've, I mean, I, they, those people fall away real fast. That's not me. Whew. No. I think based upon Jesus' comments, there are five quick lessons that we should be mindful of. First, we should model the extravagant mercy of God. Part of every parable is that little, what I like to call the exposed root in the path. You know, you're out walking, you're out hiking, and you're looking around enjoying the scenery, and the next thing you know, you stumble over some exposed root or something in the path. Most of the parables have some little detail that are in place so that way if you're coming from the outside, you're going to get wrapped around the axle about that detail and that's going to be what caused you to miss the point. You see, even in Jesus' day where they, they did in fact sow their fields by scattering seed, we sometimes think that they were idiots and that they didn't know how to control where they were throwing. But everyone would have understood in this when they... While we're on that hillside and Jesus is talking, this guy was obviously a careless or clueless sower to have sowed so much seed on bad soil. To not throw his seed more carefully so that it didn't go on the path or that it didn't go on the known bad areas. What a careless sower. This is a stupid story, Jesus. Why are you telling it to us? It's a picture of God. And how he sows the word everywhere, extravagantly. And the point for us is that like our father who sows everywhere, just, 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 just throwing the word out there, we should sow. We don't get to determine. We don't know what the good soil is or the bad soil is. We can't identify that hardened path. 
Our job is just to sow extravagantly, trusting that in the final analysis, yes, yes, some of the seed isn't going to produce the effect that we're hoping for, but in the final analysis, there's going to be a harvest. So model the extravagance of God from the vantage point of the world, all this pouring love into convicts or, 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 or despicable people or, or, or whatever. It's just foolish. But from the vantage point of God, you're sowing liberally and you're modeling his own ministry. Remember, our God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. Okay? So model the extravagant mercy of God. Second, of course, don't be discouraged about rejection. In this parable, there are four soils. Only one of them results in immediate and outright rejection. There's two of them that appear initially to respond positively, but of course, ultimately, only one out of four produces any effect, any positive, lasting effect. And so we're tempted to be discouraged. We are more prone to being discouraged about the three than we are about the one. But yet we're invited to consider the long-term ramifications that this harvest is one that exceeds all humanly expectations. 30, 60, 100-fold yield from that harvest. So we're tempted to be discouraged because we think of the seed that was wasted or ineffectual. God wants us to look at the seed that is effectual. So don't be discouraged. Third, there is no substitute for proclaiming the word. We're told very explicitly in Romans 10, 17, hearing or faith comes from hearing. Go through and look at how many times the word hear is used in this passage. Seven times to give you a clue. And then when you add the word listen that he throws in at the beginning, that's eight references to the kind of perception that comes from something having first entered your ear canals. We understand, husbands, you understand there's a difference between hearing and listening, okay? Yeah, many times I hear, I listen to my wife, but I'm not hearing her, all right? We're called to hear, but you first have to, you know, have the stuff come in your ears to hear, all right, there's lots of do-gooding that we can do. You've heard it said, you know, preach the gospel always and if necessary use words. Well, first of all, that's a spurious quote. Francis did not really say that. But preaching is by definition using the, written, the spoken or written word. There's doing good. There's living a Christ-like life. There's being a good, a good witness in that regard. But if people are to believe, if they're to hear and turn from their sins and believe on the name of the, the Lord of, uh, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, they must hear. So everywhere you go, proclaim it. In your venues, at home, with your children, with your grandchildren, proclaim the word in your sphere. Fourth, praise God for working in you. You see, in this story, there are four kinds of soil. And they just kind of are what they are in the story. But in reality, in real life, every single one of us naturally is that hard soil, that hard path. The heart of mankind is dead to God. And if God left you to yourself, the word of God would always and only hit your heart and bounce off. So the fact 
that you respond positively to the word represents that God has come before and cultivated within you and made you soil that's receptive to the word. So praise God for that. And pray earnestly for those people who right now appear to be like that hard path. That God might perhaps break up their stony soil. In fact, I'm sure that somewhere in the Bible it says something about removing a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh. Pray to God earnestly for others. And lastly, not to nullify what I just said before, and much to the chagrin of my Calvinist friends, strive to be good soil. This passage is a reminder. It's a warning that there are people who are responding to Jesus positively now, but maybe they won't continue as soon as the troubles or trials or stresses or daily grind of life continue. And it's a warning that only the ones who persevere to the end are the ones who are going to produce the fruit. So strive to be good soil. Fight against the impulses to to be choked out by the cares of the world. The Puritans wrote much about preparing one's heart. For the word to be effectual in us, we have to be prepared to receive it. The activity of the devil here of coming up and snatching away the word, that's one of his big works in the world. Haven't you ever noticed how when you're trying to get into a routine for devotions or, or, or a daily quiet time or, or Sunday mornings perhaps, it's the most difficult time to focus ever. How even now you're probably thinking about dinner or, or the ball game or whatever, we, are, we find it really hard. And I really do believe that's the working of the devil. Because he knows that if he can distract us, or if he can harden our hearts and get our minds so that way our heart is not prepared for the hearing and receiving of the word, it won't have the effect. And so the Puritans wrote much about preparing one's heart to receive the word. And so I encourage you, strive to be good soil. If you have responded positively to Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart. And now that you have been given a glimpse behind the curtain, and you know that it's only the good soil that's going to persevere to the end, well, strive to be the good soil. Knowing that if you persevere, it's the Holy Spirit working in and through you to will that good purpose. So for you, remember, model the extravagant mercy of God. Don't be discouraged by apparent rejection. Proclaim the word everywhere because it's their only hope. Praise God for working in you. And lastly, strive to be good soil. Let's pray.